All right. So, as always, I need someone to confirm um, our existence. But before we do, uh, Abby, um, I think you and I have one really big disagreement that I think we need to get to the bottom of first, which is the name of the galaxy when Andromeda and the Milky Way merge. Right. Well, um, so uh, about a decade ago, I wrote a paper about it, and the... Um, I was thinking about the, the merger product uh, for a while, for two decades, and then I convinced a colleague of mine, a postdoc, to work on that and simulate the future. Yeah. And um, in fact, we wrote, as we wrote the paper, we talked about this merger remnant uh, multiple times, and I yep. realized that it would make sense to give it a name. Uh, and so I thought of combining Milky Way and Andromeda into Milkomeda. Yeah. And, uh, I checked the web and uh, there was nothing, uh, so I used it as a convenient term. It saved us uh, space in the paper. Uh, so what do we disagree on? So, so hold on. So you went with milk, milk. I thought was it milkomedia or milkdromeda? Milkomeda. Milk. Yeah. See, so there it is. Sorry, people are saying my microphone is the wrong mic. So I'm just, I'm just fixing this. Uh, and let me, uh, let me switch this around. Yeah. So milk, milkdromeda is the milkomeda. Yes, Milkomeda, another way. Milkomeda, yeah, no, see, that's it. So I think we are we are going to disagree, um, <laughs> but that's okay. I think we can... Uh, it's just a name, you know, it doesn't... It, really, does, it doesn't really matter, no. Yeah, I uh, mean, the interesting point is that uh, within a few billion years, while the sun is still uh, alive, um, this merger will take place, the night sky will change. Uh, instead of seeing the stars distributed in a thin uh, layer that uh, we call the Milky Way, uh, they will be spread all over the sky because the merger product will be an elliptical galaxy, a galaxy that looks more like a, a football uh, rather than a disk. Um, and so uh, that will be with us for a while because all the other galaxies will run away from us uh, at an accelerated pace. They will move faster and faster with time. and. Eventually, we will lose sight of those other galaxies uh, because of the accelerated expansion of the universe. So we'll be left within Milkomeda, uh, surrounded by vacuum. And, uh, you know, that's a gloomy future yeah. for uh, extragalactic observers. Uh, but, in, you know, in principle, we can avoid that future uh, if we only develop spacecrafts that will take us out of the galaxy into the nearest cluster of galaxies, uh, the, the amount of resources would be a thousand times bigger over there because it's a group, it, it's a, the coma cluster, for example, is a thousand times the mass of the Milky Way. So uh, we will have much more, many more stars over there if we wanted to use them for anything. Uh, we'll have many more neighbors if there are any extragalactic civilizations. So, um, you know, it could be the next cosmic engineering project yeah. to propel ourselves in, into the nearest cluster, uh, because otherwise we will be left in this galaxy, uh, and that will be it. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, as so before we get into all of these ideas, I just want to give you the quick introduction, because people may wonder who you are and, and what you do. I'm an enormous fan, but let people know who you are and what you do, and then, and then I will continue to sing your praises. Sure. Uh, well, um, my name is Avi Loeb, and I'm uh, uh, the Frank B. Baird Professor of Science at Harvard University. 
Uh, in terms of my administrative duties, I chair the astronomy department at Harvard, and I'm also the director of two centers there. One is uh, the Black Hole Initiative. It's the only center in the world that uh, focuses on the study of black holes, and it brings together philosophers, astronomers, mathematicians, and physicists uh, that ordinarily speak different languages, but when they discuss black holes, they come together at this center. And uh, Stephen Hawking came for the inauguration a couple of years ago. Um, then uh, there is another center called the, the Institute for Theory and Computation, which is uh, very broad in all aspects of uh, theoretical astrophysics, and I'm the director of that as well. Uh, I'm also the chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies, and the chair of the advisory board for the Starshot uh, project, which is uh, a project to uh, visit the nearest stars. And I know a lot of people are going to have a bunch of questions about that. I do too as well. But but I like to think of you as like the hardest working person in, in astrophysics. It's funny. So, I mean, my regular day job is that I'm a journalist. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. And I'm constantly looking for interesting stories for us to publish on Universe Today. And I'm always going through the AstroPH listing of all of the new papers. And Every single time I see a paper, I'm like, oh, that's such a cool idea. Okay, we, we're going to report on this. And then I look at the name like, oh, Savvy Loeb again. Okay. Uh, you have done so – like I don't know how you keep up the publishing schedule of all of the papers. I know you have a great team that you work with and a lot of co-authors, which which makes sense. But um, you just, – just in the last year, I think, we've reported on stories from you about just how many – icy worlds there are out there in the universe, the habitability of those icy worlds. Uh, you worked on simulations for the Event Horizon Telescope. Uh, you've calculated how long the universe would be habitable shortly after it's after the Big Bang. Uh, you are involved in the breakthroughs. Like, I could just go on and on and on. Uh, you, and then you talked about this in the introduction, right? That that we are going to uh, potentially be able to move stars around uh, in the far, far future to make them more organized for our purposes. So before we get into these individual stories, like, what's your productivity secret? How do you publish so much? Well, uh, I don't see myself uh, as very special, you know. Um, I mean, I basically I have ideas that seem to me quite uh, natural and uh, down to earth and, and sort of straightforward. And what I'm surprised by is that others did not think about it before. So, you know, when I speak to a plumber that comes to fix uh, uh, the, the, the sewer, we had a, a flood in our basement. You know, I speak with that plumber and, and then it, it occurred to me that, you know, that the fact that water collected in the basement uh, reminded me of uh, matter collecting at the singularity of a black hole and, and, and of the fact that we don't speak enough about this singularity. And, and where does this matter uh, collect? You know, is, what is this singularity? And it, it led me to think about it as a quantum object, you know, that a place where matter collects at the center of a black hole. So all of these things, you know, and, and people come to me, young people come to, to tell me about what they do. And, it often you know, occurs to me that there is something trivial they should have thought about, and I mention it to them, and, and they say, oh, wow, this is really cool. This is an interesting idea. Let's work on it. Uh, this would be quite exciting. And what, what is surprising to me is that they haven't thought about it in the first place because, you know, and, and I'm quite different from most astronomers. I was not driven to astronomy or science early on. I was mostly interested in philosophy, the big questions. 
Uh, and so I'm, I'm quite different. And uh, it's just, uh, it's unclear to me why other people don't think about these things. So I, I don't think about myself as special. What uh, occurs to me is that uh, it, it's the surprise that others did not think about all of these. And when I see they haven't thought about it, I write about it. So, you know, right. that's, that's it. So that's at least it. somebody did. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so let's move through some of the ideas. And I know people are going to have a bunch of questions for you as well. And I think the one that has caught almost everyone's attention and imagination is this idea of the breakthrough star shot. So can you give people just a quick idea of, of how this is going to work? Yes, so um, the question that uh, was posed to me by uh, Yuri Milner, the founder of this, this project that is quite visionary, he said that he thinks that it would be extremely exciting to visit the nearest star. And he asked me to look into the technology that would allow us to do that. And uh, I looked at it with my students and postdocs for about six months and uh, reported back to him. And uh, I told him basically that, you know, it's. Fortunately, there is one method that looks practical, uh, but it's just like getting married. Uh, you only need one solution to your problem. Uh, it doesn't right. be more than one. So we are very fortunate to have that solution. And then um, basically the, there is a fundamental limitation to the rocket approach that uh, we use for all of the space missions uh, so far, um, because in, in that approach, you carry the fuel with you. And as the fuel burns up and you throw it uh, through the exhaust, uh, the burnt gases, uh, you still need to accelerate the rest of the fuel with you before you burn it. And so that limits your speed to be just a multiple, a factor up to a factor of 10 uh, bigger than uh, the escape speed, the speed by which the exhaust uh, ejects the, the fuel. It's, it's sort of like a jet plane. It's the same principle. You just get the boost from throwing stuff backwards. Uh, and, and you just can't speed up much more than the speed by which you throw stuff backwards. And that's usually a speed much less than the speed of light. Now, the nearest star to us is four and a quarter light years away. It means that it takes light four years and three months to reach us. So if there is a, an intelligent civilization out there that is looking through a giant telescope at us, they are, right now, they are just aware of the Obama uh, era. Yeah. They're not, because uh, Trump was elected just a couple of, uh, less than a couple of years ago, and it takes four years for the light to traverse that distance. So um, if it takes light four years and you want to accomplish this mission within our lifetime, then it, uh, the spacecraft better move at, at least a tenth of the speed of light. And you can't do that with uh, rockets. In fact, you can't even do that with uh, nuclear engines, I, I figured. And the only way to that seems cons uh, in principle doable with present day technology is leaving the fuel behind, not carrying the fuel with you, and using light for propulsion. In other words, just like um, a, a sailboat is being pushed by a wind, we can use light to push on a sail. And uh, this concept is not new. Uh, soon after the laser was invented, uh, Robert Ford, back in the early 1960s, thought about this idea. The thing that happened since then, since the 1960s, is that two technologies evolved uh, dramatically and, and reached maturity. One is lasers. It's now possible to combine laser beams uh, that are relatively low power into a more powerful beam. And, then, and, and the laser cost is much less, it drops with time. 
follows roughly a Moore's law. Uh, and the second is um, uh, nanotechnology, the fact that uh, we can, we have uh, a miniaturization of electronics in cell phones, for example, um, and that allows you to, to construct a spacecraft that weighs only a few grams, that carries a, a camera, a navigation device, a communication device, uh, and since it's so light, you can in principle push it very, with a very powerful laser up to a fraction of the speed of light. And, and that was the concept that we came up with. Uh, we worked on it for several months with uh, Yuri, uh, iterated with him, uh, and then uh, assembled a, a committee, a board, that uh, in includes distinguished physicists. And uh, the next phase, Yuri committed the $100 million for um, feasibility study. So the next uh, five to 10 years will be dedicated to demonstrating the feasibility of the technology using experiments, laboratory experiments. We selected about a dozen teams that will do experiments relevant for the demonstration of the laser. And we are also selecting right now about a dozen teams that will do experiments related to the sail. Uh, you need the sail to be very lightweight and also sturdy, very strong. And the shape of the sail is to be determined. It needs to be stable. It needs to ride on the beam of the laser in a stable fashion. Uh, and so we are working on this feasibility study. If it is successful, if it's promising, we'll move on to the next phase, which will be a, a, dem a demo, uh, a, a prototype system that will demonstrate uh, this, this uh, concept. Right. And eventually, we'll, we'll move on to the final construction so each phase will be a factor of 10 or so in cost. Uh, and the ultimate cost of the system is estimated to be roughly like uh, the Large Hadron Collider or the James Webb Space Telescope, the biggest uh, science projects that uh, are funded right now. But it would be quite exciting if we can actually reach the stars. Mm -hmm. uh, you might ask, uh, well, could it be that another civilization did that already? And it's quite possible we would have a hard time noticing such a small spacecraft right. crossing across, you know, the sky because it moves so fast and it's so small. It doesn't reflect much uh, sunlight. Uh, but um, I should say that the, 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 there was an object that came from interstellar space. Sure, the yeah, Oumuamua. Oumuamua, yes. Yeah. And uh, that was quite peculiar. This object was very elongated, more than any other asteroid that we found in the solar system. Uh, it was roughly half a mile in size. Um, and the, the other thing is that it didn't really follow uh, uh, the orbit that we expect based on the law of gravity around the sun. It seems to deviate uh, a bit from it. And, and then it's not at all clear why, because it doesn't have a cometary tail. Yeah. We don't see a cometary so actually, <laughs> I suggested, uh, we discussed it with Yuri and decided to check if it has any radio transmission. Maybe it is artificial. Uh, it turned out that uh, you can put a limit with, with existing radio telescopes. You can put a limit of up to a tenth of a cell phone. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. If, if, if you were on Oumuamua and you were on a cell phone, the radio telescopes would have heard you. They would have yes, detected you. Yes, which is amazing if yeah. you think about it. A yeah. single cell phone at the distance of Jupiter or so. Yeah. Detect that. Now, I've got a couple of questions for you. I, you know, our audience is very, we've talked about this several times. They're, they're definitely on top of the science on this. One of the questions that keeps coming back and back is, I mean, I, I totally understand the idea of sending a lot of these probes to 
you know, send thousands if you need to. They're small, inexpensive. How could you, but the transmission is going to be one of the most difficult challenges. How are yeah. you going to be able to get a signal back to Earth? We have, you know, there's a lot of spacecraft now. One of the, you know, like New Horizons can just barely send a transmission back to Earth, even though it has a, you know, has a nuclear, has an RTG on board. It has a pretty good communication system. What ideas have you put together to be able to actually get these pictures of other stars back home? Well, this is an excellent question. But first, I should say um, the target may not be just the nearest star. I mean, uh, ob the nearest star system is Alpha Centauri, and it has three stars in it. Uh, one of them is uh, Proxima Centauri that has a habitable planet, uh, which is tidally locked to it and could potentially, it's in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri. So this planet could potentially have life. And indeed, we would like to take photos of that planet to see if it's green, whether it mm. has vegetation, blue, whether it has oceans, or maybe it's a desert. Uh, and then for that, we want to fly by and take some photographs, as you say, and transmit them. That would be a great challenge, as you say. Um, we estimated that in principle, um, if um, you open up uh, an antenna of the size of uh, the height of a person, roughly, at that distance of uh, four light years, you could potentially transmit enough uh, uh, radio signal, or, or it could be infrared signal, um, to uh, detect it with a, a big enough uh, telescope on Earth. But it's not trivial, it's not easy, right. uh, as you say. And we, we went through the numbers, uh, it, it is doable. I should also mention that uh, to reach Pluto, for example, will take a few days uh, rather than uh, almost a decade as it took yeah. a new horizon. So, so if there is an object of interest in the solar system, for example, Oumuamua that we just discussed uh, is running away from us faster than any chemical rocket. So we cannot chase it. But if we had the technology of Starshot, we would easily catch up with right. it and fly by, take some photos, we would get more information. Right now, we don't know what it looks like. Is it right. artificial or natural? And and so, I mean, I was thinking that maybe you'd utilize some kind of daisy chain to try and like have the like send probes on a regular basis, and they could somehow send the the photos and information back along the chain. That's um, a possibility, but um, it doesn't save much. Uh, it turns right. out that I mean, it's a possibility to have relay stations along the way. Uh, you're right, but uh, turns out that you know it is possible in principle to construct a strong enough signal. Uh, right. We're talking about sending uh, the signal with. Uh, a laser, for example, from the spacecraft uh, that has roughly one watt of uh, energy right. uh, power. It's um, just the the bigger the listening you can create, the bigger the the telescope. You know, say you turned the entire Event Horizon telescope on oh, yeah. on Alpha Centauri or on Proxima Centauri when the probes are getting there and trying to transmit back, then that means a smaller transmitter, and then you. I, so okay, that that makes sense. I, I'll be able to use that as an answer in the in the future. Um, the other thing, and this is this feels more like a, a publicity, not stunt exactly, but you just talked about it briefly that Oumuamua would be an ideal target. The reality is is that there are a hundred thousand fascinating targets right here in the solar system. Every single moon, every single planet, every single dwarf planet, every single asteroid. Um, those are absolutely fascinating targets that astronomers would 
beg to have any close-up photographs and spectroscopic information of. I agree. That, I agree. that feels like it's the natural target yes. for I, these I, missions for the for the foreseeable future until we've mastered the intricacies of it and then send them to another star. So isn't that really where these things are going to go? Is well, everywhere uh, in the solar system? That's definitely, uh, that's an excellent point. Um, there are two reasons why um, such a technology would be appealing. One is that the, the travel time is much shorter, as we discussed. Instead of a decade to get to Pluto, it could take a few days. Yeah. Uh, and the second is that th these are cheap uh, spacecrafts. Uh, so since they weigh only a few grams and they are made of technologies that are similar to a cell phone, you know, we're talking about uh, the cost of hundreds of dollars per spacecraft. It's not very expensive. Uh, and so the fact that it's uh, relatively easy to reproduce such a spacecraft makes the project, you know, the, the launch of such a spacecraft much easier. Uh, it's not a, a huge mission like we operate. In, in the spirit of the way we operate right now, where you have to plan for a decade and then it takes another decade to construct this uh, mission and so forth. Here it, it will be, once we, we, we have the infrastructure, it should be really straightforward. Uh, whenever you identify an interesting target, you just yeah. set that direction. I can imagine and, some space-based manufacturing 3D printer that just prints out new spacecraft and, and there's a queue wow. like the Hubble Space Telescope, right? You just You just get your you know your destination request in the queue and then whenever your turn comes up the next probe that comes out is sent off to your target and a, a couple right. of days later you get the data that you want yeah and you don't worry so much about um, uh, one of these spacecrafts uh, you know getting destroyed as a result of a collision with a, an asteroid or, or or a dust particle uh or whatever uh because it's not very expensive um so you can send a, a, a collection of those in, in the right. And also, if you worry about not being precise, if you send a, a few of those uh, around the region of interest, uh, that should cover it. Uh, so yes, um, now there was um, uh, there was an uh, article in uh, Forbes magazine that appeared a week ago arguing that you know if uh, there is an alien civilization out there, it might see see such a, a technology. An act of war, right. uh, but uh, I, I actually wrote a reply to that that should appear shortly, yeah. in which I explained that there is nothing to fear about because the amount of energy carried by such a spacecraft is comparable to the energy carried by an asteroid uh, that is roughly the size of a human, uh, and we have such an asteroid. Uh, you know, there are a few of those every year that they hit the atmosphere and they burn up, and here we are talking about. Uh, a spacecraft that weighs only a few grams, so it will burn up much more easily than uh, a few meter size uh, asteroid. Uh, and um, you know, these things are more similar to um, uh, uh, you know the, the irritation that that uh, a, a grazing cow would feel from a dust uh, grain uh, hitting right. its skin. I mean, than than anything else. So th there wouldn't be much. Uh, of a concern about a, a risk for another planet from some, and and also the chance of hitting a planet would be extremely small because we aim to be within a, a few thousand times the size of the planet to take the photographs and the chance of hitting the planet directly would be one in a million or less so um this is really not something to worry about uh, i mean my hope is that once we reach the interstellar highway 
you know, obviously, I, I have no fear that we will be fined for speeding uh, or <laughs> yeah. that there will be any road rage. Um, uh, uh, I think it's more likely that we will receive a message uh, saying, welcome to the Interstellar Club. Yeah. Uh, your, your, your probe was destroyed, but welcome to the welcome to the club. And there must be, a, you know, if I, I don't think we are uh, likely to be alone. I think uh, that what we see around, just out of modesty, I think what, uh, the life that we see here on Earth must uh, be replicated in many other places. And and so my guess is that, um, you know, we are not the first ones to think about interstellar travel. Yeah. And that the most like, so we keep thinking about looking for life and looking for intelligent civilizations on planets near stars. But uh, my guess is that uh, the most common, the most abundant uh, signatures of such civilizations would be flying objects uh, that fill up the interstellar medium. And they're, they're quite small, so it's not easy to detect them, but I'm sure they are out there. Uh, so one of, the, one of the other issues, of course, is attempting to slow down. And I think this is not a deal breaker. I mean, if you can't make these spacecraft slow down, Nah, you know, you got your pictures and the spacecraft flew through the through this other star system and that's great. But in in an ideal world, you would be able to slow the spacecraft down. Have there been some ideas on ways that you could slow them down again to to go yeah. into orbit and maybe stick around? Well, in principle, if you uh, launch them at a slower speed, then it should be possible to slow them down uh, on the radiation from the star or uh, or if um you know, if you send the a low-speed spacecraft such that it lands on that other, on the target planet, let's say, and then you can build there uh, the infrastructure that was used to launch these things, then you can imagine the reverse, you know, having a parachute on these things that's, you know, with a laser over there that slows them down. It's just that we don't have um, equivalent system out there. Right. Once we had some kind of infrastructure, you could imagine this future transportation system where lasers are accelerating from the sun, lasers are decelerating from Alpha Centauri, and you've got this way of getting around. Right. And and I should say humans are not designed to interstellar space. So, (laughs) you know, science fiction movies show humans traveling, but these are very long journeys. And uh, I mean, it's true that um, if you uh, accelerate hum- a human for a year at 1G, which is the acceleration we feel here on Earth, then it will reach the speed of light. But, but that requires a huge amount of energy to get there. Right. And, 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 and otherwise, the trip, the journey will take more than a human lifetime. And if you don't reach a fraction of the speed of light, and so, and, and, and there is no reason to risk the lives of uh, people that we care about. Uh, all you need is to send um, a 3D printer that carries the information of how to reconstruct the human out there right. and reconstruct it. And then, um, you know, I, and, and I think electronics or, or machine learning, artificial intelligence are really the future. And so eventually we'll be able to uh, basically um, have the information that encapsulates our existence transferred rather than ourselves. Uh, I'm seeing a bunch of questions coming from the audience now. Uh, a couple of questions that I think are interesting. One, Mr. Tommy Pickles asks, what kind of a camera could we fit on, on such a craft? What kinds of photographs, how, how many photos will you get as you, one of your spacecraft is flying through another solar system? Well, think of the camera as, that, as similar to that 
uh, we have on, on, a, on a cell phone. Uh, basically, um, we can take uh, photographs of that quality um, and, and the camera will weigh less than a gram, uh, a fraction of a gram. And um, in principle, if you uh, want higher resolution, then you need a bigger lens. But uh, the calculations we have done were for that type of a camera that you find in the cell phone. Um, and the, the, the number of photographs that you can transfer is dependent only on the communication device, uh, on, on how fast, what is how uh, much information you can transmit per, per second. Uh, and that depends on, 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 as we discussed before, on, on the means of communication. So if you use a laser, that limits the number of bits that you can transfer. And uh, so roughly we're talking about the photographs every, every few hours or so, if, if you take realistic numbers, and not much faster than that. And you will have passed through the solar system within a couple of days. So you're only going to get a few dozen photographs. Well, that's if you visit a, a target in the solar system. But if you go to the Proxima Centauri planet, for example, then um, you, you could take a lot of photographs, store them in memory, and then relay them Trend over a long time. Right. And it, yeah. takes, uh, it takes four years for these photos to reach us. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and we can't correct uh, the course of this spacecraft because it's already uh, out there. And I guess, I mean, that's how New Horizons worked, right? That it that it took all of its pictures over the course of a day and right. then has been transmitting those photographs back for the better part of 18 months. It just exactly. finished. And now yeah. it's about to do this again. And then we're going to have to wait even longer for the for the next series of images. So that so that makes right. a ton of sense. Now, um, if we were to send uh, New Horizons, it would take 100,000 years to reach uh, yeah. Centauri. So... So the point is that, you know, if, if you are willing to wait long enough, you can send something that will move slowly and eventually land. But, you know, if you think 100,000 years ago, that's when uh, humans uh, started to use tools in Africa. Uh, a lot has happened since then. Uh, I'm not sure we want to wait 100,000 years. And the other thing is, once we launch something that will take 100,000 years, within those 100,000 years, we'll develop technologies that will allow us to do much better. And we will over you know, overtake that, that uh, spacecraft. So there is not, no, no point in doing that. Well, one thing is great as well, though, the Parker Solar Probe, with how fast it's going to do its mission to the sun, it'll only take 6,000 years. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, that, that now humans have the technology. We've knocked, like, a factor of 10 off that flight time. So now you'd only need a generation ship that would last for a ridiculous amount of time. Um, uh, so another question here, this came from Arjone. Um, I know it went back here. Could a laser highway be constructed in the solar system using these types of lasers? And so this is a conversation that I've had many times on my channel is this idea of infrastructure in our own solar system. And these lasers sound like they would be one of the most efficient, effective ways to be able to just help spacecraft move from world to world within the solar system itself. Right. Yes. So, you know, every long journey starts with the first step, but, but indeed you can think about the subsequent the steps that will be taken. And, you know, obviously we could move first to the moon and then uh, to Mars and so forth. And, and it makes a lot of sense, for example, uh, to have a transportation system between Earth and Mars, for example. Uh, you don't need to move at the fraction of the speed of light for that. Yeah. Uh, it can be transportation that moves things at you know, less than a percent of the speed of light and faster than chemical rockets, but, but not very fast. 
And that, instead of uh, using a laser in the infrared or um, uh, wavelength range, you can use a, a radio um, a maser, so-called uh, at radio wavelengths, a millimeter or centimeter long wavelengths, the type that you find in a microwave oven. And those are optimal, actually, for launching uh, things between Earth and Mars. And we went, actually, through the numbers. Uh, and, and the interesting point is that uh, if you imagine a similar system already in existence in another planetary system, where you have a pair of an Earth and a Mars uh, planets between, among which there is a transportation system, then uh, every now and then you will see the beam of radiation that is leaking uh, outside the sails, uh, scanning the sky, and you will see it as a flash of radiation. And an interesting search to make is for flashes of radiation uh, that you would see uh, from, from a planetary system as right. a result. Now, as it turns out, there are fast radio bursts. Yeah. Uh, these are flashes of radio uh, uh, transmission that, that we receive from space. Uh, again, most astronomers would tell you that it's quite likely to originate from neutron stars, natural sources, at cosmological distances, but it could be that a fraction of those are associated with such systems. Yeah, one of the best tools for finding this is actually here in Canada at the Chime Observatory. That's right. Uh, yeah, which uh, is this really, it's it's a little far, a few hundred kilometers away from where I live on, on Vancouver Island, but uh, I yeah, definitely but, want to go and, and take a look at it. Uh, and one, one thing I should say is um, uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is considered outside the mainstream for some reason that is not clear to me. Because, uh, you know, we are talking about a phenomenon that we find here on Earth, okay? And we know that a quarter of all the stars in the galaxy uh, have habitable planets around them. We know that from the Kepler satellite. And so all that one is saying is that, you know, if conditions are similar on other planets, a quarter of, of, of the stars may have such planets, then uh, we should search for a phenomenon that we find here on Earth. That makes a lot of sense. It should be mainstream. I don't see anything uh, speculative about it. Uh, so it's a sociology of science that uh, is unusual. And because at the same time, you have uh, people, uh, theoretical physicists, talking about extra dimensions uh, that are curled up and we can't see any evidence for them. Yep. And that is considered mainstream. <laughs> and uh, to me, it's the other way around. I mean, I would think that the searching for intelligence in the sky is, is more of a mainstream activity than searching for extra dimensions. It's. I mean, it, it, I, I absolutely agree with you. It is perhaps the most fundamental scientific question that a human being can ask is, are we alone in the universe? And anyone who thinks that it's not an interesting question, I would, you know, if I knew the answer, I could write it on a piece of paper, I could put it in an envelope, and I could give it to them, and I could say the answer is in there. Would you like to open that envelope? Are you curious to know the answer? It is a scientific question. Uh, one thing that was really fascinating, we actually talked to Brad Peterson, uh, who's working with the Louvoir telescope just two weeks ago, and he said something really interesting, is that Louvoir, when built, will know with 90% accuracy if we're alone in the universe. It will help us find, it'll be so capable at, at analyzing the biosignatures in the atmospheres of other worlds that we'll know to a certain radius out there whether or not we, we are alone, which I think is, is really so, so that's that's correct, uh, but that's the search for primitive life, uh, for sure. molecules in the atmospheres of planets. And uh, that is within the mainstream. And 
Just recently, about a couple of weeks ago, we wrote a paper with a postdoc of mine, uh, Manas Vilingam, where we estimated the likelihood of success in the search for primitive life, meaning uh, looking for molecules that are indicative of life, like oxygen or methane in the atmospheres of planet that, that could be produced by microbes, you know, versus the chance of success in a search for intelligent life. And we concluded, you know, based on all the information we have, that that it would make sense, you know, given that we have these ambitions to build these big telescopes that will cost billions of dollars, that uh, it would make sense to invest uh, about the percent or so of that money in uh, the search for intelligent life, uh, because the chance of success is roughly one in a hundred. And then, uh, so, so it, uh, searching for intelligence makes sense uh, at the same time as searching for primitive life. And if we search for molecules that are indicative of primitive life, we could also find industrial pollution, for example, in the atmospheres yeah. of other planets. The, it might in, indicate uh, not so intelligent life, but, but in that <laughs> industrial life. Right. Or, or it could indicate uh, that there are aliens out there trying to uh, change the climate artificially because it was, if the planet is too cold otherwise, you might introduce uh, these gases into the atmosphere that warm it up. Uh, now, one of the things that you've also done a lot of the math on is this idea that that there are potentially a thousand times as many water worlds as there are terrestrial planets. So planets like Earth in the habitable zone where life can form, there are potentially a thousand times as many worlds because we see places like Europa and Enceladus and potentially Pluto and Eris and all of these places out there could have, have life as, as well. But they are difficult places for life to get very complicated and especially for us to even be able to detect it. So That's right. can you talk a bit about that, just about, about yeah. that, that idea? So there are many more objects uh, where you have an ice uh, surface, icy surface, under which there, there is a liquid ocean. Uh, and that's simply because of the properties of water, that uh, the, the ice could potentially protect the inner region. And uh, so you, you could have liquid water under the surface, and that liquid water could potentially be in contact with rock, uh, the way that it is on the surface of the Earth. And the advantage of that is that um, first you have, as you said, many more such uh, worlds, uh, but also that you are not restricted to be just in the Goldilocks zone at the right distance from the star where the surface is warm enough. You can be farther away like Enceladus or Europa and still uh, maintain uh, the chemistry of life. Uh, now, how can you detect that? Um, well, in the case of Enceladus, uh, the Cassini mission uh, discovered these plumes, geysers, uh, plumes of, uh, of water vapor uh, emanating from the surface uh, in the form of jets. And, uh, and uh, in principle, if we fly through these plumes, we can collect uh, water vapor and, and check the composition and, and see if there is any signature for uh, molecules that are biological uh, in origin. Uh, that was not done because Cassini, uh, you know, we didn't expect when we uh, designed the mission, we didn't expect those to exist. Uh, and uh, a future mission could uh, look into the composition of these plumes and, and perhaps figure out whether there is life under the ice on Enceladus that uh, we can uh, infer from the composition. 
And we already know that there are organic molecules in these blooms with uh, uh, an atomic number uh, of more than 200. So there are more than 200, you know, uh, protons and, and neutrons uh, in these molecules that are very large organic molecules, but but we don't know if uh, if they are indicative of life or not. Uh, and so it, it's quite possible. And then uh, Europa uh, also has uh, hints of such uh, plumes coming off uh, from observations by the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, now, of course, you can imagine a, a mission that will land on the surface of Europa and, and drill through the ice uh, and, and then uh, put uh, perhaps uh, a fishing net that, to collect any fish that you find under the ice. Um, well, we call uh, them the European space whales. <laughs> uh, certainly, we, we could uh, check if there's anything on the surface, you know, that uh, is organic. And so, but that's uh, for the future. It would be extremely exciting. Now we also know that there is a lake on Mars under the, uh, the surface, most likely. And, and uh, we could check that for signatures of life. By the way, it's not at all clear that life started on Earth. It could have started on early Mars and transferred to Earth by rocks. We know that some Martian rocks made it. Yeah. Uh, and there are animals, uh, including uh, tardigrades, for example. These are microscopic uh, water bears that can survive the harsh environment of space. In fact, a bunch of those was taken to space by a French uh, mission, space mission, and they survived uh, for uh, more than a week and brought back to Earth uh, under dehydration and the extreme conditions of, of, of space. And, uh, and then uh, once they were put in water, they, uh, half of, more than half of them reproduced the healthy embryos. So, so um, you could imagine some, some of these uh, either microbes or, or tiny animals surviving inside a, a rock uh, that is launched into space and landing on another planet. So, so life could have been transferred from Mars to Earth or, or vice versa. Uh, one thing we have to be careful with is as we visit those places, we should make sure that we don't bring life with us. Um, one of the ideas that I find really fascinating with this whole idea of this interstellar asteroid, this Oumuamua, somebody did the calculations that there at any point there could be 30,000 asteroids like this these interstellar asteroids passing through the solar system at any time yes. and so you can take that whole idea of panspermia and scale it up another notch which is that there could very well be this this transportation of life from solar system to solar system so actually two points about that uh, first uh, about a decade ago we we wrote uh, i was involved in a paper the first paper to estimate how many interstellar objects of course you were should <laughs> Uh, pass through the solar system and we estimated a number that is a million times less abundant than needed to explain Oumuamua. And so, wow. first, you know, that's quite remarkable that we found this object because we didn't expect it. Okay, so based theoretically, based uh, making analogy with the solar system, assuming that all other uh, stellar planetary systems are similar to the, the solar system, uh, we infer the rate of incidence that is a million times less. Uh, but another in interesting point is now that we know that the Oumuamua exists, uh, so we wrote another paper saying, uh, you know, there is a fraction of those objects that pass through the solar system from interstellar space, a fraction of those that get captured. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Earth, so, sorry, the, the Sun and the Jupiter are the biggest uh, objects in the solar system uh, 
and they can act as a fishing net to collect such objects. Because if an object passes close enough to Jupiter, it will give Jupiter a little kick and, and by that get captured into an orbit. And once you have these bound objects, and there should be thousands of them in the solar system right now, you can visit those. You can design a mission that will land on the surface of these objects and check for any signatures of life. And that is a much more efficient way of figuring out whether other planetary systems around other stars have life. Instead of uh, you know, taking a long journey to visit those stars that could take 100,000 years if we use chemical rockets, instead of doing that, we save the time because these objects made the journey that took them 100,000 years, and they are now in the solar system. They came from outside. And we can examine them and infer the properties of objects in other, around other stars. And so that of, opens a completely new way right. of probing the environments of other stars. If only there was a way that we could send lots of little spacecraft around the solar system to study each one of these little objects to, to study it. So uh, perhaps right. if someone can, can work on that. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so I want to I want to talk about one last subject that well actually I've got two. So the next one I'd like to talk about is is this idea of protecting against the dark energy future when the acceleration of the cosmos takes away all of our future stuff. Right. So you proposed a way to deal with that, and actually another researcher at literally almost the same time, right? Two of you published papers at almost the same time, didn't you, about this? Well, so um, it, it all dates back to the time that the universe, uh, I mean, the discovery that the universe is accelerating and that eventually won the Nobel Prize. It, it was, the discovery was led by two uh, former graduate students of my department. Um, um, and uh, they realized that the universe is accelerating. And shortly afterwards, I started thinking, uh, you know, what are the implications of that? And, and the implications are that if you look at distant galaxies, they are receding from us at a speed that increases with time. And eventually they will reach the speed of light. So even light will not be able to bridge the gap that is being opened between us and, and those sources of light. And so we won't know the whereabouts of those galaxies in the distant future. We won't be able to find out what happens there. And um, then we will be left on our own uh, in the darkness, in an empty universe, just, um, you know, the Mil Milcomeda galaxy. And um, when I wrote that paper, I got an email from Freeman Dyson, who uh, indicated, he said, uh, well, maybe we should engage in a cosmic engineering project. Uh, that was about uh, six years ago. And um, in which we will collaborate with other civilizations and uh, perhaps bring ourselves together. And uh, recently someone actually, and, and I told him, look, this is uh, too much to ask, uh, you know, to move, uh, to move uh, a star or um, ourselves uh, together with other stars, uh, bring them together is, is a huge engineering uh, project. Uh, it didn't sound realistic to me. Then there was a paper recently uh, suggesting to move stars around. And uh, that led me to write uh, a response saying that right. instead of collecting uh, stars and moving them artificially, uh, in fact, nature uh, established already uh, those uh, regions of space where, where there is a lot of resources. Uh, these are called clusters of galaxies. They are the biggest 
collections of stars in the universe. They have roughly a thousand times the mass of a single galaxy like the Milky Way. And they were assembled by gravity, naturally. And we don't need to assemble stuff so that it will not run away from us in the distant future. We don't need to assemble these resources, this, this fuel for the future ourselves. Nature did it for us. All we need to do is propel ourselves into the nearest star, uh, cluster of galaxies. Now, if I think about the same logic, you know, it, other civilizations may have already thought about it and they might be already on their way into clusters of galaxies. So if, if uh, indeed this is not origi an original idea, if other civilizations are doing that, there must be traffic of civilization towards right. clusters of galaxies. As we speak, uh, we, ca we can't really see them easily because they're not producing a lot of light relative to stars. You know, it's just spacecrafts moving them uh, in the right direction. But uh, it, it would be a smart thing to do. Uh, and if a lot of those civilizations do the same thing. They will find you, you will find a large concentration of civilizations in those clusters of galaxies. If we stay within the Milky Way galaxy, like some loners might prefer to do, <laughs> right. uh, you know, we might find ourselves in a you know a small environment that, that doesn't have a lot of resources, and then nothing around it. Uh, right. So um, I would advocate actually joining the crowd in those big clusters. Right. We've only got a hundred billion stars to work with here in the Milky Way, and that's <laughs> nothing compared to what we could. And I guess what we'll get from from Andromeda when it collides with us, creating milk, milk Dromeda, but yeah. um, the, but not, it's nothing compared to the amount that's going to be in those. It's in only those a factor of two. It's yeah. only a factor. And and the other thing to keep in mind, the, the sun will burn up. Uh, it's roughly at the middle of its life right now, so it will burn up in about uh, seven billion years or so. Uh, and um, it's by no means the longest lived uh, type of star. In fact, it's uh, the least. It's not very common. It's not a star that is very common. The the smaller stars are much more common. These are called dwarf stars that have roughly a tenth of the mass of the sun. Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to us, is one of these stars. It has 12% of the mass of the sun. And it would live for a thousand times longer than the sun. It would live for a few trillion years. And uh, there is another star that is near us uh, of that type. It's called the um, um, Trappist-1. And it has seven planets around it that are known, that, uh, three of which are habitable. And it has 8% of the mass of the sun, and it would live up to 10 trillion time, uh, 10 trillion years. Right. So these are the longest lived stars, and we will find ourselves next to one of them if we want to be close to a furnace that lasts much longer than the sun. All we need to do is just tear the sun into 13 equal parts, and we'll be fine. Um, no, we can just move into those uh, locations. Right. Uh, Proxima Centauri is the nearest star. We can just go there. Um, and, and I should say, uh, the, the habitable planet around Proxima Centauri, that is called Proxima B, is uh, 20 times closer to the star than we are from the sun. And that's the habitable zone because the star is so faint that you need to be much closer to it. And because it's so close, the planet is uh, tidally locked. It, has, it shows the same face to the star at all times as it moves around the star. Just like the moon shows us the same face as it moves around the Earth. And uh, so there is a permanent day side yeah. and a permanent night side. And my daughter said uh, to me when she heard about it, that um, if we ever go there, she would like to have two houses, 
one on the permanent night side where she will sleep, and the second one on the permanent sunset uh, strip that separates the day side from the night side where she would have the vacations. Uh, so you have a permanent sunset over there. Um, now we've got about uh, eight minutes left. Uh, your time's very valuable. Um, one question that came up a little while ago, and I know you were involved in this as well, is the event Horizon Telescope. When do you think we're going to see the first pictures of from the telescope? When do we see that first picture of a black hole? My guess is that uh, within uh, uh, half a year from now, um, we will see uh, an interesting uh, result from this uh, telescope. The data was already collected. Yeah. It's high quality data and it's being analyzed right now. It was taken under very good conditions. So the quality of the data is high. I haven't seen any image or any results yet, but uh, the, the team is working hard to analyze the data. And I expect it to be exciting uh, within uh, half a year from now. Um, and the idea is to, to get a, an image of the shadow of the black hole uh, on the background light that comes from the matter falling onto it. So you can think about this uh, illumination from the background light as being some wallpaper uh, on top of which uh, the black hole uh, sits and, and, and you will see the shadow of the black hole. So you could measure the, the, the size of the event horizon. Uh, you can test the general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity. Although that was already tested by uh, LIGO, by detecting gravitational waves from the collision of two black holes. I should say that, you know, it's a, a, it, LIGO made the discovery for which the last Nobel Prize was awarded uh, exactly 100 years after Einstein came, uh, formulated his equations of, of uh, general relativity. And uh, Einstein himself, um, so he formulated the equations uh, in 1915, but then um, uh, around 1935 or so, he started to doubt that gravitational waves exist. And he wrote a paper together with uh, his postdoc, uh, Podolsky, uh, arguing that gravitational waves do not exist, that they, are, they have some mathematical singularities that uh, make them uh, some fictitious mathematical objects that do not really exist in nature, that they're not of physical significance. That was a wrong paper. And um, the reviewer of the paper tried to correct the the mistake and Einstein uh, was very upset that this paper was submitted for review. He thought that it should have been published, but actually this reviewer saved uh, him from embarrassment. Uh, and then he wrote another paper just a few years later, arguing that black holes do not exist. Uh, and uh, his reasoning was that if a star collapses, even if there is a little bit of spin, that will prevent the matter from collecting in the center. And uh, and that was also wrong. We, as we know, uh, stars do collapse and make black holes. And uh, LIGO basically demonstrated both of these to exist, both gravitational waves that were the messenger that provided us with the information about the collision of two black holes in perfect agreement with the equations that Einstein formulated much earlier. And this is an important lesson in the history of science because it shows you that uh, experiments are really essential. Uh, that even uh, someone as uh, smart as Einstein could get sometimes things wrong. Yeah. And uh, around the same time, he also thought that the quantum mechanics uh, cannot be right in the way it's formulated, must have some 
underlying uh, physical interpretation that, that he thought of as being causal and deterministic, and that was wrong as well. And and so um, I think it, it, we should stay humble. You know, the, the pleasure of doing physics is that you can remain uh, a child in your adult life. You, you can still wander about the universe, make mistakes, and correct your prejudice based on experiments. And that's that's wonderful. You know, there aren't many occupations that allow you to make mistakes like that. Um, I know that we're all really excited ab- about it uh, when the when that image from the Event Horizon telescope comes out. But you had, I think you you and your team made a bunch of the simulations on what we should expect to see. And I know there's actually been some some readings have been done over multiple years. And what would you be surprised to see? It would be surprising if the, the shape of the shadow is different from what we expect, because in, in Einstein's theory of general relativity, irrespective of how fast, uh, how rapidly the black hole is spinning, uh, the image looks pretty much uh, robust to that, insensitive to spin, and and it has a characteristic size, and, and we pretty much know the mass of this black hole. So, if we see anything different than, than what we expect, that, that would be very interesting. Now, the, you know, LIGO confirmed the existence of black holes, uh, but uh, seeing is believing. You know, if, yeah. if we see something, uh, I mean, there is no reason to suspect that we will not see what we expect. But, uh, but if we do see, perhaps, you know, there is something else out there. And, uh, you know, some of the most fundamental puzzles we have in present day physics have to do with the unification of um, gravity, according to Einstein, with quantum mechanics, which is another pillar of modern astronomy, of modern physics. And then, um, you know, there could be surprises that have to do with the way that these two theories are unified. We we don't have uh, a, a a theory that brings them that marries them in a way that was tested uh, so far, and so. By looking at a black holes represent one of these extreme environments where we can possibly see deviations from Einstein's theory of gravity. Well, uh, so we're just going to last a couple of minutes. So, uh, Abby, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I know that I could just have these conversations all day long, but you've got some some physics to get to get back to. Um, where can people find out more about what you're working on? Well, if, uh, if they just Google me, uh, Avi Loeb, L-O-E-B, uh, they would uh, find a lot of material uh, in the form of uh, news articles, uh, opinion essays, uh, and also publications, uh, professional uh, publications, on my personal website uh, at Harvard. And uh, I'm also always uh, interested in speaking with people, irrespective of how... Uh, uh, broad is their uh, education and in fact I often find people that are not uh, very educated people that you know uh, come to work for example in our backyard or I find them the discussions with them more fascinating so I would welcome uh, anyone that wants to speak with me especially and- if it's some idea that maybe someone hasn't done the done the math on yet and uh and right. there's an interesting analogy there. That's uh, that's terrific. And what is the what will we see next? What is the thing that you're working on right now that maybe we're going to see soon? You can well, um, be specific. Uh, I'm working on a, on a number of projects. Uh, one of them is trying to understand the, 
what the singularity of a black hole is, uh, what is this thing that uh, where Einstein's uh, equations break down there? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book related to the search for intelligent and uh, primitive life. Uh, and there are many uh, new ideas that will be there. Um, and so, and, and I'm also working on the very first uh, galaxies, the very first stars in the universe, the, the scientific version of the story of Genesis. Uh, these are the main three areas. And, you know, if you ask me any day of the week, I, I will give you a different answer because, um, you know, it's a, it, it's a creative process by which uh, there are new ideas that come along and new papers written. And r- roughly every year I have about 40 papers or so, yeah. uh, papers. Yeah. And uh, so every couple of weeks there is a new paper. And and it's hard to forecast exactly what the next paper. I, I should just be grateful that I'm not being assigned a, a job that will take away my free time. And, and also that, you know, I have such a supportive uh, wife and family that uh, allows me to do all of this. Uh, and finally, you know, every time I wake up in the morning, I, I'm worried that, you know, maybe I will lose it and, and not have any new idea. It's never guaranteed, you know. Well, I, I, from from my perspective, you, I can't imagine that'll ever be a time. And I just want to give you a big thanks f- from as a journalist, someone who ha- who is like trying to report on this kind of stuff and is always looking for interesting ideas that I think is going to ignite the audience and 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 you know sort of help them with some of their intellectual curiosity. You do such a great job, both of generating ideas and writing papers, making them very accessible, but also making yourself really available to, to those of us who, who have more questions. So I know that the, the, I don't know where you find the time. Uh, people say that to me, but I, you're the person who I like, I have no idea. Literally. I think you've, there's a Nobel prize cause you've already figured out how to bend space time. And that's <laughs> how you found the time to do the work. But, but thank you so much. I know the audience appreciates you joining us this week and uh, love some time to talk with you in the future after the next few hundred papers are out. <laughs> thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thanks Abby. Bye-bye.